You can grab a seat. If you've got a Bible, do me a favor and turn to the gospel according to John chapter 8, and we'll be in verses 31 through to 38. Now, you'll remember over the last couple weeks, we've been going through this particular window in the public ministry of Jesus in which he has stepped into Jerusalem probably for the second time in his life, and while he's there, he's having these interactions with the crowd, the crowds. And Jesus, at this point, has become something of a public figure, and like all public figures, everybody has an opinion about him, and most of those opinions contradict everybody else's opinions. And so last week, we kind of saw this, where there's, there's people who think he's probably demon-possessed, which is... Not a great opinion to have of somebody. I don't know if you feel that way about anybody you know. We should talk after if you do. Uh, And then there's other people who who think he might be the Christ, he might be the Messiah, uh, but I've got some questions. And so there's a hesitancy. And And then there's people like the disciples who are fully convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. And what we see in, in our passage tonight is Jesus interacting with people who maybe at one point believed maybe thought for a while that he was who he said he was, but have strayed or fallen into some doubt. Uh, And we'll see how Jesus interacts with them and what it says for us here. But let me just go ahead and jump right in. Let me read this in John 8, 31 through 37. It says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth. The truth will set you free. He answered them, They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? So Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you're the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. So I wonder if you're familiar with a Canadian Roman Catholic moral philosopher named Charles Taylor. Yeah, that's a lot of adjectives in front of one person's name, right? I mean, a Canadian Roman Catholic moral philosopher, like, is anybody interested in that string of adjectives? It's like underwater basket weaving in the Pacific Ocean in the fall. It's just so complicated. So um, while almost nobody has any interest in that, Charles Taylor is actually a really, really significant figure. Uh, A couple of years ago, he published this book called The Secular Age. And basically what he was trying to do in that was look at Europe and the, the United States and Canada and figure out how it was that we got to the moment that we're in right now. This moment where, where most people, maybe not most people, but there's a, a, a number of people who feel like religion is just not really that important anymore. And, and it becomes increasingly difficult for people to believe that there's anything more than what they can taste, see, feel, and touch. And so the book is, is a thousand pages long and almost impossible to understand, but fortunately a lot of smart people have read it and translated it to dumb people like me so that it can be understood. And what what Taylor does there is he goes, here's how we got here. And then he says, here are the ideas that people are sort of swimming in even when they don't know it. Like here is room temperature. This is all sort of stuff that people don't think about, but they're making their decisions based on these sort of principles. 
He says, one one of the things that defines our age is that we live in an age of expressive individualism. That's also a ton of syllables that you don't have to remember. But expressive individualism basically, basically is this. We as a culture don't think that anybody can tell us who we are. Nobody can define us for us. So we have to define us for ourselves. Now, if that sounds complicated, it actually gets a lot easier because every time you take your phone out and you click on the Instagram app, you are looking at expressive individualism in action. Every time you scroll through and you you see your friend who has the top-down, perfectly poured latte next to the charcuterie board, the food that was obviously staged, the food that may not even taste good, but it looks good, people are practicing expressive individualism because they know if I post this, it will cause people to think of me in this particular way. I'm defining myself for the world. It, it plays itself out in things like people going on vac- vacation, 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 and taking 6,000 pictures and then spreading them out over the course of the year on social media so it looks like they live on vacation, right? Because they, they want to be known as someone who travels, They're trying to express their personality, even if what they express isn't actually true of real life. It's actually the reason why you can get in an argument with somebody on Facebook about some deep political issue and be fine by that afternoon. Because very often, we don't really care about the things and the issues that we talk about on social media as much as we care about how our passion makes people think about us. Now, I say all of that because it's possible for Christianity to be hijacked by this idea. That's the point that Taylor makes, is that it's possible for us to see Christianity as just another way to express ourselves, another way to define ourselves. And so we claim to be Christians mostly because it it makes us seem spiritual and it makes us seem uh, in touch with ourselves and it makes us seem like, you know, we're, we're a good person or we have... Uh, We have an affinity for supernatural things. And and very often what can happen is that we can claim to be Christians, not because we actually believe it or because it's affected us, but because it's just another thing and a long list of ways that we can define ourselves. And what's so significant here is that Jesus, in this conversation, is telling people, this is what real Christianity looks like. Like this is what true discipleship looks like. Not just claiming the title of disciple, uh, not just putting a cross in your Instagram bio, um, not, just, not just having like a Jeremiah 39 tattoo. No, this is what real discipleship actually looks like. And, and he says it to these people, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. You'll know the truth. And the truth will set you free. That phrase that Jesus uses, abide in my word, is maybe not uh, something we use very often. If someone texts me and says, what are you up to? And I say, I'm abiding in my apartment. I, I actually might say that, but that's not because it's normal. It's because I'm weird. Now, the, the phrase abide is, is one that might throw us for a loop, but there's a, a New Testament scholar who actually translates it, and I think this is helpful. If you make your home in my word, you are my disciples. I wonder if you've ever just thought about how the space in which you dwell affects the way that you operate in the world. The first time that I kind of thought about this, I was having a conversation with a friend who was an architect. 
And I'm always just interested in what people have to study to get whatever degrees they get. You could have the most boring degree in the whole world, and I'd ask you a bunch of questions about your classes. Because again, I'm a nerd who would use abide in a text message. Um, and so I was asking him, okay, so what, what, did, what did that look like? And he said, well, like, I asked him, what's the most interesting class you took? He said, I took a class on the psychology of buildings. And I said, buildings don't have a psychology, dear friend. He said, no, that's, that's, not, that's not what it is. Um, the reason why architects have to take that class is because it is possible to build something in such a way that it creates moods in people that would not otherwise be there. So you can actually build something that will make the occupants more prone to depression. You can actually build something that will make the occupants more prone to anxiety. And the way that you structure the building, what you do with the lighting, what you do with the colors. Because the space that we dwell in, it affects the way that we operate in the world. So what does it mean when Jesus says, make your home in my word, and then you'll truly be my disciples? Well, I think it means a lot of things. There's a lot behind this, but maybe one thing worth considering. Um, What I I like about my apartment is that there's a lot of windows. Uh, I, I counted today, I've got 12 in my apartment, which is a lot, I think. The problem with that is that there's blinds on all those windows and my cat has destroyed all of them. So that's actually gonna cost me a ton of money to fix. But the, the thing with windows in a house, especially in my own life, because I'm technologically challenged, is if I, want, if I want to check the weather, I don't pull out the weather app, mostly because I don't really know how to do that. Um, I look out the window, is it gonna rain? And Through the place in which I dwell, the windows of the house that I'm in, I see the world. I think that's part of what Jesus is getting at when he says, make your home in my word. He's calling us to be a people who, who like we would in our own home, that we would gaze to, into the world through the window of scripture, that the Bible and the teachings of Christ and the Old and New Testament, that these would be the things through which we see everything else. And that's, easier said than done, isn't it? Like, I mean, that's, that's really easy to say. But I think the question that we have to ask ourselves is how often do we actually view our lives through the lens of scripture? And maybe that's easy in the good stuff, right? Oh, praise God. I got an A on this test. Praise God. I got this new job. Praise God. This relationship's going well. Praise God. That, that's easy enough to, to, to see things through the lens of scripture. But when things go bad, Oh, abiding in the word of Jesus is so difficult. I, I can think of um, one instance a couple years ago. It was one of those times where I felt like all of, all of the things that could go wrong were going wrong. And, and so um, I'd made some dumb financial decisions, which meant that there wasn't a whole lot of money to go around. And then my cat had some health issues, which meant that there was no money to fix that. Uh, on top of the fact that uh, I was already coping with just an incredible amount of anxiety, I was kind of just going through this season of depression. And I remember being so overwhelmed at one point that I sat down on my chair and I said to God, why are you doing this to me? I didn't say that to God, I yelled that at God. My cat stared at me as I sobbed and 
didn't say anything because cats don't talk. But in that moment, I was so overwhelmed by my situation. I was so overwhelmed by the circumstances that the idea that God was for me, even when things weren't going well, I couldn't see through that window. I couldn't see it. And that's the temptation when things go bad, isn't it? To, to, it's easy to see the world through the lens of scripture when it's giving us what we want, but when it's not, that's when it becomes so, so important. So important to be in community because the temptation for us is always going to be when things don't go well, that we're going to stop viewing things through the lens of what scripture tells us. And yet what drew me out of that was talking to people who reminded me of what I knew was true, who put me back in the house and said, look through the windows, Travis. Stop trying to do this on your own. Stop trying to think about this from, from your own frame of reference. You need to abide in the teachings of Jesus and what he said about your life. And so it's so important that to have people like that in your life, that to have people who can call you back to what's true when you're prone to forget it. And so part of abiding in the words of Christ and being a real disciple is that we see the world through the lens of scripture. But there's another reality that is present in my apartment and in all buildings. I don't actually know the square footage of my apartment, so I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. I found it on Craigslist, which I don't recommend, but it's small. It's not very big. And so I can't run in my apartment. In any way, if I pick up enough speed to be considered running, I'm going through the wall. And that's really bad when I'm being chased by my cat. (laughs) (laughs) The point being that any space in which you dwell, any place in which you make your home, it places limits on you. It, It builds a frame around you that keeps you from doing things. It keeps the elements out, right? It's not gonna rain on me but it also keeps me in. I can't run in my apartment. The walls are thin. I can't yell in my apartment. And I say this because when Jesus says, abide in my word, make your home in my word, I think we have to acknowledge that when we really do make our home in the teachings of Jesus, the Bible builds walls around our lives. It sets up parameters. It constrains us in the decisions that we make. So with something like alcohol, the Bible puts fences around that. Not that you can't drink, but that you can't be drunk. The wall goes up. With something like relationships outside of marriage, the Bible puts up these fences and these boundaries that we, that we have to be willing to live within. And, and with something even like anger or bitterness, the Bible puts up fences. You can't carry that. You're to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And, and the tension for us, I think, when we see the Bible sort of building these fences is that we can feel like it's actually keeping us from being who we really are, keeping us from expressing ourselves. And that's where Charles Taylor's idea of expressive individualism comes right back in. How dare you tell me that I can't do this thing that I want to do? And then abiding becomes difficult. But what Jesus actually says to the crowd is this in verse 32. If you make your home in my word, you are my disciples. You will know the truth. 
And the truth will set you free. There is something about dwelling in the teachings of Jesus that doesn't actually constrain us, but it frees us. How, how can that be true? Well, a couple days ago, I went to the dentist for the first time in a long time. And because of that, the, the dentist decided they were going to do this like 360 x-ray, which was terrifying and felt like something from Star Trek. Um, and as, I, as I'm walking up to this giant machine that looks like it could kill me, they're giving me all these rules. Okay, there's this plastic piece right here that you have to bite down on. You can't move or it'll ruin the x-ray. Also, you need to wear this vest, which looked really cool because it, I mean, I don't know what it's made of. It looked like a bulletproof vest. And so I wanted to ask them if I could take it home. Um, do you have to wear the vest? Do you have to bite down on this? You can't move your head. You have to be perfectly still. We need to adjust this. They're, they're laying down all of these rules for me before I can step into this machine. And I guess it's theoretically possible that I could have turned to the nurse and said, you can't tell me what to do. I'm going to approach this x-ray how I want to approach this x-ray, and don't you limit my self-expression. <laughs> but the rules are there for a reason. The rules are there so that the machine can do what it was meant to do, so that it can be what it was meant to be, so that it can function not how Travis wants it to function, which would probably give me some sort of a disease if I took the vest off because it shields you from radiation. Um, no, it's there. It's there. The rules are there to guide me towards what's actually best, even if I don't see it. So often, I think for us, that we think that the commandments of Scripture that we're called to abide in here, that they're there to kind of restrict our expression and make us unhappy and not let us be all we were meant to be. But the point of the commandments of God is actually to teach us to live the way that we were fully intended to. It's not to put walls around us and make us unhappy. It's, it's there to show us how to actually express humanity as it was meant to be. I think we, we function under this idea. We've believed this thing that everybody just throws out and it's just not true. To err is human. I mean, we've heard that before. To err is human, to forgive is divine. To forgive is indeed divine. But I think we, we think that part of what makes us human is the fact that we sin. And that's just not true. Adam and Eve are full human beings before they sin. Jesus is a full human being and he is without sin. Sin is not something that makes us human. Sin is something that makes us less than human. Sin is not something that defines our humanity. It robs us of our humanity. And so when, when scripture lays down these guidelines and Jesus says, abide in these things, make your home in these things, live your life in light of these things, be shaped and formed by these things. When, the, the, when scripture puts up the walls, what we have to recognize is it's not there to make us less than what we are. It's there to make us more of what we should be. Holiness makes us more fully human. And so when Jesus says, make your home in my word, walls and all, windows and all, it's a call to see all of life with the teachings of Jesus. And it's a call to live life as it was meant to be lived. Of course, the, the crowds don't really understand this. They're, they're confused by it. Because Jesus is talking about them being set free and these are people who say, well, we're the offspring of Abraham. We've never been slaves to anyone. 
how is it that you say you will be free? The idea being that even though Israel's dealing with the Romans, they're not enslaved. So what is there to be set free from? Jesus corrects them because he says this, sin is slavery. And that is the exact opposite of the way that we think about so much of what the Bible calls sin. We think about it as though it's freedom. And Jesus says it actually makes you less than human. It makes you less than what you were fully meant to be. It makes you a slave. And what I've come to do is set you free. He concludes by saying, one who the son sets free, free indeed. That freedom comes from believing the gospel, making our home in the word of Christ, being reminded of it by people who who encourage us when we're tempted to forget, delighting in the law, the Lord brings liberty. Let's pray. God, we love you. Um, Lord, we thank you that you have invited us not just to consider your teachings, not, not just to think really hard about them, not even just to memorize them, but to live in them. That in, in, in this poetic way, you have invited us to dwell with you in your presence, to learn from you what it means to live life as it was meant to be lived. But we thank you that, that through the work of Christ, you have set us free from sin, called us into the freedom of holiness. God, I pray that for whatever things that we're struggling with in this room, whatever walls that you have put up that we resist, God, show us how they're there for our joy, not our frustration. God, for the situations in our lives that we refuse to view through the lens of what you have said, what you have declared to be true, God, would you put people around us who bring us back to truth, remind us of what is true, what Jesus has done, what you have said. Lord, we ask now as we come to the table that you would meet with us, that this would be a place in which you remind us of what is true. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.